Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Our guest today is Amy Burke, a financial aid professional and doctoral candidate whose dissertation focuses on financial aid research. Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It's a pleasure. Wonderful. Let's take a moment and get to know about you. And let's start with who Amy really is, not who work Amy is. So if you would share whatever you're comfortable with, hobbies, things you're reading, watching, or listening to, whatever you would like people to know about you. I am a native Detroiter. Maybe unsurprisingly for folks who are from the Detroit metropolitan area, I grew up driving race cars, actually. I've been a member of the Sports Car Club of America since I was basically born. So that's a little unusual tidbit about me. Not currently watching anything, but I will say for those who are ACOTAR readers, if you know, you know. Sarah J. Moss came out with a third Crescent City book at the end of January, and I read it. And for those who don't know, Sarah J. Moss is an author of sort of fantasy fiction, and there are three currently there are three sort of series and not really a big spoiler alert, but after the end of, after I finished devoured, I think uh, the third Crescent city book, I realized that now I had to go back and reread the throne of glass and court of thorns and roses series. So I am currently on the second to last book of, Throne of Glass, and then we'll be rereading Court of Thorns and Roses. So I have, yes, that is, if I don't read, if I'm not reading things academically, I feel like in my free time, I really want to dive into something that's completely indulgent. And that's what this is. And is the reread helping your, like, concept or understanding of the the later books? Not yet. The I'm rereading um, Throne of Glass first, which is sort of a back back story, but it's helping me refresh my memory of all the working characters and how the this world looks or what it you know, and I hadn't read them in a couple of years and I binged it during the pandemic and mm-hmm. have subsequently read multiple other books. And so this is helping me refocus that. And so and I realized how much I missed or didn't pick up on the first time. And so yeah. Awesome. It's well helpful. thank you. Well, how about work, Amy? So talk to us a little bit about your journey into higher education and then how you ended up in your current role. I wish I could tell you this is a straight A to B answer, but I took a more circuitous route to get where I am today. We'll get it out of the way that I have a passion for students who are struggling in college because I went to school for three and a half years and I called generously called myself a senior. Um, unfortunately, my original institution did not feel the same way. And after quote unquote attending, I use that term very loosely as well, for three and a half years, they asked me not to return as as one does if you've only earned 40 credit hours with a 1.5. So fair. I went off and lived adult life, did adult things, um, always in the back of my mind, in under, my first time in undergrad, I really was very involved on campus, 
understood that student affairs was a thing you could do as an adult. And that was always in the back of my mind. And so I had a change of life and had an opportunity to do basically whatever I wanted. And I decided to go back to school. So I moved to Asheville, North Carolina in my early 30s, moved in with my daddy, which was amazing, and went to University of North Carolina, Asheville, finished it up with the intent of knowing I wanted to apply to student affairs programs, because um, that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so I did, did my master's here at Clemson. Um, in my second year, I switched assistantships between my first year and my second year. And my second year assistantship was in the Office of Financial Aid. And I think they liked me because I was a non-traditional grad student, right? I was in my mid-30s by this point, um, had experience doing my own taxes, understood what a tax form looked like. And for those who don't know, we deal with tax forms every day. That is that working knowledge is actually very helpful. So I came in and I did that for a year. And then I jokingly say I took a 10 week Netflix hiatus after, after graduation. And then um, I eventually during the hiring process and I eventually started my job here after graduation. And I've been here for almost, almost 10 years. Wow. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and I don't even remember what the context was, but it was, I, I said something about, there's this narrative out there that, oh, I took the traditional student affairs route. I was the hyper-involved student, and then I started doing student affairs. I don't think that is the traditional narrative. I think the family circus walking home from the park route is more the way most of us go. And mm -hmm. at this point, probably nobody not very many people listening, no family circus, but it's not a straight line. I mean, mm -hmm. for, for most people. So well, I think at some point you have a, an impetus. There was an experience either in life or in your undergraduate experience that drives you to this field in a way that is meaningful and purposeful for you. And you're right. I don't think it necessarily always takes the straight A to B line. Right. Right. For sure. Well, so let's talk about your area of expertise, one of your areas of expertise. Um, it has been in the news a lot lately. It's probably been in your world more than the recent, you know, two weeks or whatever that it's it's shown up in even mainstream media. But the delays around financial aid awards, in addition to being in the news a lot lately, that we have to be talking about it on campus. Um, because there are real implications. So can you, from your perspective, give a summary of what's happening around financial aid right now? And then we can talk about the implications in a minute. No, sure. I'm happy to. Um, I think to address the fact that we're making mainstream media, that is probably the last place any financial aid professional expected their area of expertise to land on the six o'clock you know, national nightly news. Um, but here we are. For a little backstory, in late December of 2020, the federal government passed the FAFSA Simplification Act. And that was an attempt to do exactly that, simplify the FAFSA process. We were dealing with a 
40 some odd year old system with the current FAFSA, no major updates have been made in years and years. So this was essentially a complete overhaul of the aid application process from start to finish. So this was a huge undertaking. The goal was to ask fewer questions, to allow students and parents and family members the opportunity to do this in less time by asking fewer questions and by making it a little bit easier to complete and more accessible to complete, hoping to increase access to federal aid for all student populations, right? You really wanted, um, that was that was their goal, right? To make this as easy as possible. They paired that with the Future Act, which was a partnership between uh, the Department of Ed and the IRS, essentially, allowing them to directly transfer tax data into the FAFSA. They had a system in place that was already doing that, but this was a sort of different, newer, all-encompassing system. You weren't asking students to go to parents and say, hey, parents, can you go find your tax returns from two years ago that we can use to complete this document this weekend? Because that sounds like a fun time. So yeah, this was a way to sort of make this process more streamlined, or at least that was the intent. And so intent versus impact, obviously, in student affairs, we have lots of these conversations. And I think this is a one of those examples where you're seeing what the intent was, and then the impact is something wildly different. Right. Well, let's talk about that part. So, and there, there's like um, points of impact on a number of different levels. When you think about the situation that we're in, how does it affect students, institutions, but then also just like your office and your team's work? How how does what's going on change the work that you've done? Add to, I mean, it probably takes a little work away right now, but I bet your phone calls are up. So, yeah. you know, what's what's the story? Um, so on multiple levels, right? I guess I'll address sort of one at a time because it looks different. First, for students, parents who are trying to go through this application process, you have to remember this is nationwide. This is every student trying to enter college in the fall of 2024. Continuing students, I feel like, are going to be less affected, typically because they are already established college students. Deadlines for schools tend to be later for continuing students. I think the big impact right now is really for those first-time, first-year students who are applying to start college in the fall of 2024. It is frustrating. The system, when it opened on December 30th, and for reference, it typically opens on October 1st. So there was a huge delay there. And so then now you're looking at students over winter break who have maybe three or four days before their high school starts again, right? Or, you know, depending on your school district to complete this and get it submitted so it's done and you don't have to worry about it anymore. The system was crashing. Students could not complete it. It was getting stuck at certain points. The process itself is seems to be not intuitive. For example, the student has to start and do their portion. They add the parent's email address. The parent gets an email inviting them to contribute to the parent section of the student's FAFSA. They go do that. Then it goes back to the student for them to complete and finish. 
if your parent is married and they filed jointly, one parent signature is good to go. Um, if they filed separately, you have to now do two and you didn't know that because that's such a difference from before. There's no editing available. So if you made a mistake and you know you made a mistake and we've had lots and lots of those communications from students and parents that they know they made a mistake, but they're not able to change it right now. The help desk, the federal help desk is either overwhelmed or not available. I know that we've had lots of calls. Even our office, we're having a hard time getting through. Parents and students are having a hard time getting through even just to ask questions. So yeah, I think that obviously all of those are friction points mm -hmm. at varying levels and varying degrees, depending where you are in the process of submitting it. Either you can't even get it to load to submit or you are halfway through or, oh, I have to get this other parent to do this, right? There's multiple points in that process that are causing friction. And then also, if you have a question or you want to make edits because, oops, I know I made a mistake, but I can't go back and fix it yet. As we understand it now, editing won't even be available until the middle of March. That's as we understand it. Mm -hmm currently. And like I said, we're sort of taking it day by day and learning as the federal government gives us updates. Initially, we were supposed to start receiving, schools were supposed to start receiving FAFSAs in FAFSA data in, on January 30th. And then on January 30th, we got notification that that would be delayed until their phrasing was the first half of March. Um, so and that is in line with the fact that they're saying you can't edit until mid-March. So yeah, it's a challenge. So that's sort of how students and parents are being affected. And again, it's not just here at Clemson, it's nationwide. No school has FASOs, zero schools, which I guess is a nice segue into the institutional piece of that. There's lots of things going on there, but just from our, this is sort of our office as well as institutions probably across the country, Every institution has a timeline. They start preparing for the following academic year during the current academic year. And this, there's lots of things that go into that preparation, including updating your financial aid processing systems, right? The software that you use to receive FAFSA data and package students. For us, it's part of our student management software system here at Clemson. We're a banner school, but there are other processing systems that various schools use across the country. For us, it's about a five-month process preparing for this. We would have started this process after October 1st, when the FAFSA normally historically opens. We would have started that preparation process. So basically, we're going to do, if all goes to the current forecast timeline, we will do about five months of work in two weeks. Oh my gosh. So I... <laughs> I say that very glibly, but it, I mean, it is what it is. And I know that um, institutions around the country are struggling with that exact thing. What does this look like for us as and our staff and our processes? And I've been in several webinars with folks from around the country sort of sharing their experiences, their preparations. And again, it's it's experiences and preparations. It's There's no answers yet, right, about what this is actually going to look like when it starts. And I guess compounding this is just the last week, at least last week, that's when we found out that the 
Department of Education or whomever is responsible for sending the software updates required to these processing system software folks, right, to create the updates they need to push to schools, they were provided the wrong information. So now, at least for Banner, this is where we are. The folks at Lucian who own Banner, right, they're going back and having to recreate these updates to send to schools so that the schools can prepare themselves adequately to begin receiving that FAFSA data from the Department of Education when the, when it becomes available. So it's just a it's just a matter of things that have gone awry and schools are doing their very, very best. And I know that in a, a meeting last week, it was funny. She, it was a division-wide meeting and our director of IT here, who is, shout out to Jennifer Williams, who is taking the brunt of this home with her every day, I'm sure, and keeping her up at night, is she said, this needs to be national, be kind to your financial aid staff. She said week, I say month. I mean, I'm not. Maybe just, year. <laughs> maybe the year. I mean, let's not put limitations on us, shall we? Yeah, because it's, again, not just here, it's around the country. And I jokingly said the other day that on any given day, probably the person who has Jennifer's position, and I'm not saying she did this, but it would not be surprising to find someone crying under their desk. <laughs> like, this is so much, right? And how do you do this in a way that is the most beneficial to students? And at the end, that's what we want to do, right? Is we want to help our students access higher education and understand what their options and affordability pieces look like when making their college of choice decisions. So that's sort of that side of it. And then I guess in our office, <laughs> it's just just it's a lot of love and support going around, um, doing our best to make sure our Clemson pieces are in place. So when we get those updates from Banner and when we get the FAFSA data from the Department of Ed, we are ready to go to hit the ground running with as much efficiency and care is humanly possible in order to get this information out to students to help them in that process. I will say it's interesting for many schools. There could be scholarship funds or grant funds um, that have a financial need component, but schools are unable to award those if they don't have the need piece to make that assessment and that determination in awarding. I know some schools are, again, from these webinars I've been in, I know some schools were talking about, well, maybe we sent out the scholarship piece first so we can at least get that out there. And then the federal aid, when it comes in, would be a second piece to their aid package. And if you are working in an institution that has a need-based component to some of your grant funding, that second piece wouldn't come until we get the FAFSA, right? Even though it's not technically federal aid, it would be institutional aid, but it would be paired with, right? And I guess, I mean, I can get into some concerns, I guess, later as we chat. I know that there was some harm there, but that's one of those pieces I, I, I worry about. I mean, we're pushing back financial aid nights into the spring. We want schools to wait on doing financial aid nights, but don't wait too long. It's a moving target, I think, at this point, and that's what we're trying to find the sweet spot of how we can do our outreach and support our students in the area as they try to access higher ed, you know, financial aid in a higher ed setting. Yeah, so that's that's sort of where we are right now. I just feel love and compassion for you all. I mean, it. 
um, I wish you all the best for real. And I, I think sometimes when I say that, it sounds like sarcastic and I, I really am being genuine because it's, you're preparing, but you don't know what for and you don't know when to be ready for it. And, um, and you have a lot of people who want to know what you also want to know. <laughs> so, right. um, well, so you talked a little bit about different institutions doing different things and trying to figure this out. It sort of makes me think about the pandemic and when decisions were made and how we really looked to other institutions. What are they doing? Did that work? Did it not work? Both at the beginning and then at the hopefully end when we started to bring students back to campus. So what are you seeing from other institutions and how how are you communicating with each other? Like, are you sort of, hey, this is what we're doing here. What are you doing? Where, where are those conversations happening? Well, I'll say I was in a SASFA webinar two weeks ago, maybe. And these were directors from all around the country. And it sounded a lot. And again, lots could have changed in two weeks. Right. So to be fair... At the time, it sounded like there was lots of conversations about we're having these conversations internally. We're not sure what we're going to do yet. We're thinking about some things, but maybe no decisions have been made. That's what sort of I got out of that, which is fair. There's lots of stakeholders and overlapping interests that happen on each campus that if you move a deadline for something, you know, that may affect, I think about here. There's a mentorship program in an office on campus, and they need to tell that group whether or not they want to be involved as a mentee in this program by May 15th. Hmm. Right now, our commitment deadline for Clemson remains May 1st. But there are, what if that changes? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, for example, the University of um, the UC system in California, they came out really soon. They were one of the very first group of schools to come out and say, you know what we're going to do? We are moving our commitment deadline as a system, as the entire UC system from May 1st to May 15th. So they were one of the very first ones that came out with that decision. I'm assuming that conversation had been happening or, or maybe they knew it was a possibility. But yeah, I think you're going to see around the country people... Maybe if they, even if they don't change their deadlines officially, I think the inherent nature of this is to offer maybe more flexibility than schools have in the past. And again, maybe that is or maybe that isn't. It depends on the institution. But I, I would think that we would see at schools maybe more flexibility with deadlines, commitment things this year than in, than in years past. If students don't have an entire financial picture with which to make their decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And understanding exactly where, where they can go or makes the most sense for them. And again, it kind of comes back to, you don't know until it happens, what, what options might present themselves or what your new timeline might be or whatever. And I right. say your, like, it's just your <laughs> office hour, right. right? It's everybody who works in higher ed is touched yeah. by so, this is the royal we if we've yeah. ever had it. <laughs> what about, like, what does this mean for the future? 
And I know this is all speculation and it's a, a big ask, but if you were, and I can rephrase it this way, what should we be thinking about in terms of short-term and long-term implications? And, and I'll give an example. And for listeners, just so you know, Amy actually came to a policy course that I teach and talked with us last week. We're recording this on February 27th. And one of the things that we talked a little bit about was the enrollment cliff. And might this bump that up a bit? Like potentially we will see fewer students in college, especially students who have significant financial need because they won't have the information they need to make a decision about going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that was just one thing that came up, but what, what are your thoughts in terms of like, there are short-term implications for sure. Sure. In terms of programs and practice and policy and things like that, but there are longer term implications that, Again, we may not know until we know, but as the holder of all the wisdom on this podcast, Amy Burke, what, what yes. are your thoughts? I speak for all financial aid. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Let's, I am not the royal we. Um, I guess just experientially, I would say just we know that that enrollment cliff is coming. I think I mentioned in class that I know that the um, the admission staff here in our office, I mentioned a quarterly meeting we had last week, that they were actually talking about seeing a little bit of that with our in-state applicants, simply because there aren't as many students, the population is less, right? There are fewer students who are graduating high school because there aren't as many kids that age anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and he did mention sort of seeing that a little bit, or maybe he, they thought they were seeing that a little bit this year with our South Carolinians. Um, but it makes me wonder about what, and this can be both beneficial and harm, I guess, if you, so I'm going to say a couple things, but I feel like sometimes they can end up on both sides. I worry in the long term about how many students just give up on the institutions of higher ed. They just say, this isn't for me. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go do whatever it is they want to do, which inherently is fine. But if they were planning on or had aspirations to attend college and this experience in some way steered that path away from accessing higher education, what does that look like? I wonder if I wonder if uh, enrollment at two-year institutions, technical colleges, local junior colleges might look different this year than it did in past years. I think we saw that a little bit in during the pandemic as well, right? Students maybe stayed home, closer to home and did some things, obviously for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if, if because the affordability piece is not, or potentially is not as timely as it could have been, or turns out to be not timely for that particular student, and they make a different decision, what does that look like? I think we have to consider a big harm piece right now for me, or that stands out to me, is the FAFSA is not available online for students whose parents don't have social security numbers. So students whose parents do not have social security numbers need to complete a paper FAFSA, which is 20 pages long, hmm. 
and send that, or at least the PDF, right, as I look online, because I had to send that today to actually my partner who works with students at a local high school who had a student in this situation. And then you wonder about language, right? The fastest available in, I think it's just Spanish and English. What if your parent speaks a different language where that FAFSA is not available in that language? Um, there's a technology accessibility piece. If you are looking at moving away from parents without social security numbers, but if you're looking at students with a high financial need, if they don't necessarily have the technology or the ability in their home, there's lots and lots of like pieces to consider when thinking about this, right? And I would say a, a large percentage of students that you want to reach to make sure they know they have a federal entitlement in the Pell Grant if they are high need, if they have a high financial need, that potentially the overlap of students who may face barriers in completing this or accessing the FAFSA or getting it completed in a timely way may overlap significantly with the very students that we are trying to help. Mm -hmm. And that's, like I said, that's things I think about, but we may not know until we know what that looks like and just trying as best as we can to do well with our outreach and give the best advice and make sure they know where they can submit a FAFSA, how they can do it. Yeah. I feel like I have more questions than answers at this point, especially when thinking about the future, about what this means moving forward. My hope is that like the tech pieces of this will resolve itself fairly quickly, right? I'm hoping that those people with the keepers of the ones and the zeros who write code or whatever it is, I do not do that. So mad respect to those who can, that is not my wheelhouse, but whoever is helping with those pieces, that that portion gets resolved relatively quickly. So we will not have the same challenge with the 2526 FASO. I was just going to say, I think at least having some questions is something right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's people want answers, but they also want right answers. And better to say that's a good question. We'll have to circle back than to try to answer things that we can't answer right now. So, right. And those questions are just what came out of my mind in I the know. upstate of South Carolina, right? At my very specific institution type size location, right? All of that. It'll be very interesting, I think, to see financial aid professionals or higher ed professionals in general, um, what that looks like coming out of different parts of the country, different institution types, right? What challenges they've faced or noticed. Yeah. Well, and that's a perfect lead into the next question, which is, so for student affairs, but also academic affairs, anybody in higher ed, and especially those with student-facing roles, what suggestions do you have? Are there resources you would direct people to? I guess the question is both, what should people be prepared for, which I think you've touched on, right? Um, but might want to expand upon, and then what, how sort of do we help? How do we help? Took me a while to get to the actual question. Yeah, no, love that. I'm, th I'm there with you now. I think what we can expect in the very immediate short term is potential delays, mm -hmm. right? We are, we've already had delays. 
you might expect to see some schools changing deadlines, change, giving leeway on that, right? I think you can probably safely expect that some schools will be offering some changes, some leeway, some um, flexibility surrounding that. I think that you can probably also, honestly, like I mentioned at the top, I don't, we don't expect to be on the NBC Nightly News or whatever mainstream media covers this, but they're doing a good job. Mainstream media is doing a good job in bringing this to the forefront of the country, right? It's on the Nightly News. People have heard of it. I will say when parents or students contact us, they lead with that. They We understand there's a federal delay. We understand there's been some setbacks, right? So I think the knowledge is being put out there in a way that is pretty transparent, at least as far as there are delays. This is not a surprise. Maybe when it happened, it was, but right they're they're talking about this. There's videos online for students on the studentaid.gov website. It actually talks about how to do it, what it is, what are the changes. So those are pretty accessible. I will say I... <laughs> I mean, I understand how the algorithm works, but I have found myself somehow, and I don't know how to tell you to get there, but I am somehow on FAFSA talk. So I didn't even know that was a talk, like book talk. Sure. I don't know about FAFSA talk. I named it. But there are some pretty interesting and informative little TikToks out there talking about the new FAFSA, the delays, what federal aid looks like, right? I would offer, you know, let take those some of those with a grain of salt. I don't know how many of those are actual experts in the field, but I have seen several that I was like, oh, that's actually very helpful and not presumptive, right? It wasn't presuming anything. So there, there are resources out there, I think, for student affairs professionals or higher ed professionals who are student-facing, who do not work in the financial aid office, right? The awareness piece of it, just understanding that students might be under stress. I think this might particularly affect schools that offer summer programming if there are deadlines, because summer starts before fall, right? And those deadlines naturally come before that. So if participation or enrollment in a summer program might have effect, have an effect on that. I know that that there's a lot of overlapping pieces, right? So I mentored the mentorship program that they need to commit by May 15th if they want to be part of the program. But they can't move a deadline because their participation piece is bound by housing. And so housing has a deadline, right? And then um, this is the same at all schools, right? If you have stuff, that's happening and you're partnering with multiple parts of campus, moving a simple deadline for one office may have a ripple effect on multiple offices. So it really goes to show that this really is not just singularly a financial aid problem. It is potentially affecting lots of different offices and departments on campus. I think about Again, using our institution as an example, for students who have a significant financial need as demonstrated on the FAFSA, we don't know that yet. We offer things like, we'll review you for a housing fee application waiver or an orientation fee waiver. So there is other money pieces and other offices involved with funding of students and supporting students 
because they use the information that comes from the FAFSA. So without that information, what does that look like moving forward? Do their deadlines need to change? You know, again, more questions than answers, but it just goes to show how interlocking mm -hmm. this really is. And it's not simply a, a challenge faced by a single functional area on a college campus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and then there'll be all those fun surprises that, oh yeah, I didn't think about how this connects to this connects to that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it, this is the we're finding out, right? This is the 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 times where schools are. You mentioned the pandemic earlier. I feel like this is a again totally different reason, but in in the same way as we discovered new ways to do things. And to help support students, I think this will be a place where there is now going to be maybe considerations for flexibility on how to support students. Mm -hmm. And we look at how we do things in a way that, well, sure, it's always been done this way, but we also had this thing that was always done this way. And now we don't have the thing anymore. So what does that look like? Um, and for me, I, I'm not, I don't want to make any overarching statements but i always think if we can think more critically about how we are supporting students in new creative and innovative ways that work better for students and i think that's a good thing to think about right you mentioned um resources on the website are there mm -hmm. any other resources you would direct people to i think at this point the federal government sort of has a bit of a monopoly on this because it is so new <laughs> that their website really does have in depth. They there's a demo. There's a what's changed. Um, there's a whole one about glitches and issues to know about. I mean, they're letting you know exactly what is happening and where you might find a challenge, and then solutions and workarounds. Your financial aid office, obviously, we try our best, and we. They're a wonderful resource, and we obviously want to help students. So, I, I mean, obviously, your local financial aid office. For those professionals, make friends, bring snacks. Chocolate is preferred. And, yeah, I mean, all of us, I'm sure, will be happy to help our colleagues across campus understand what we're doing because this is not a situation that's really ever happened before, right? It's, it's never happened before, and, and to have – to help everybody be sort of on the same page and how we are supporting our students through this process in the best way possible through collaboration and transparent communication is really love that for us. Right. <laughs> I want, right. I want to do that. <laughs> and would you mind repeating the, the website again? Sure. It's so it's the federal department. It's the department of education's website and it is studentaid.gov. So S T U d-e-n-t-a-i-d.gov. Great. And, and that's where students students go to do their FAFSA there. They um, do entrance loan counseling. It's sort of a multifaceted site all in one. Mm -hmm. And again, with you having taken us through some of that the other night, I really would encourage people listening to go take a look at that because mm -hmm. it might... Again, the financial aid staff are experts in their areas, and you may notice things that would have a direct impact on your area 
because that's what you do all the time. It seems pretty easy to navigate, even Mm -hmm. though there are new questions coming up and new workarounds, I think, coming up all the time. There are, and their website, they, um, again, on the studentaid.gov website, they have a list of ongoing challenges that include workarounds if they're available. And then beneath that, you'll see the resolved issues. So if you, maybe you tried to do the FAFSA on January 2nd, and had a challenge, but now that issue has been resolved, you'll be able to go in and see that it's been resolved and start over or sort of see what they're working through and what the workarounds are currently, mm-hmm. if, if there are available. Well, and, and again, just a note or food for thought, I guess, not just for you to access as a practitioner, but if you know people with a graduating senior Mm-hmm. who's trying to figure this out, they may or may not know or have seen this website and gotten these resources. So share often, share broadly. Well, Amy, I think I'm at the end of our sort of scripted questions. What else would you like people to know? Anything else you want to share, things I should have asked? About? I will say sort of two things. One, a potential challenge for this year and one, something good. I would say the potential challenge I I see, and it seems like there's one every couple of years just based on formatting. For example, four or five years ago, we had an influx of FAFSA applications that had duplicated parent income into the student income section. Mm-hmm. That happens from time to time every year, but this one particular year, we could not figure out how this mistake was being, we saw just this massive increase, how this mistake was being made so often. Turns out that it was just the way the tabs were, the formatting on the online FAFSA that particular year must have been confusing because the following year, it, it didn't look like that anymore. And we did not notice that same mistake happening. This year with And again, this is just my perception. Feel all my financial friends out there, feel free to chime in, share your concerns. Is that they sort of asked some dependency questions a little differently. And for those not in my field, there are very specific questions and qualifications that allow a student to be considered independent for federal aid purposes if they don't meet these sort of 10 questions. And The way in which they're being asked this year is both sort of good and bad, right? We want to make sure that students who are eligible to be considered independent for federal aid purposes are, in fact, offered that opportunity and maximize their aid offers, right? Of course, we want that. The other side of that is if if you do not meet the federal statutes or qualifications to be independent for federal aid purposes, the way in which it's asking might lead you as the submitter or as the student to question it yourself. And you're like, well, maybe. So my thought is, and again, we'll see if I'm right. We'll see if I'm wrong. I have no idea. Um, so sort of like in your that one year where we saw this increase in duplicated parent and student income information that we had to resolve, I, at this point, I theorize that we will see more dependency status questions, answers that we will need to resolve. Again, I don't know if that's going to be true or not, but as I did the FAFSA, right, as I logged in to like look at those questions, that's what I thought. I'm like, I wonder if that'll, what that'll look like for this year. 
And I guess the positive side is you mentioned, hey, anybody who has a senior in high school, hey, anybody who has a junior in high school, I typically recommend not, I don't recommend, but it's a, it's not something I've not done, right? I have done this a lot of times. If you have a junior in high school and you want to get a feel for what the FAFSA looks like, what you're going to actually have to sit down and do senior year, there is no harm, no foul in logging in and completing a FAFSA your junior year. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to any schools. Right. You're not enrolling because you're a junior in high school, but it's practice. And it's a thing that exists and it gets you sort of into the groove and understand what that looks like. Do I want to tell you to do that right now? No, <laughs> I, uh, no. <laughs> do I think you might want to consider it in a few months? Right. Sure. If it's, you know, assuming that all issues are resolved or the majority of issues are resolved, and it, that is something I recommend is like, Sit down, do it. Sit there with a high school sophomore or high school junior and just do it. It's not going anywhere. You're not enrolling in college. It doesn't matter. But it it gives you some insight on what that process looks like before you actually have to sit down and mean it when you're a senior. I really appreciate the conversation today. I One thing that um, I know we've talked a little bit about previously, but anyone listening who has an interest in this topic and is trying to figure out what do I want to do for my dissertation? <laughs> this is a line of inquiry, probably for the rest of your career, no matter how old you are, because this is going to be, um, this is going to be a remarkable moment in higher education. People will remark on it a lot for a long time. So I feel like um, when I'm done with my dissertation, this is going to be an interesting next step in in my research quest. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's a million ways to look at it, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Amy. I always love our conversations and I, I really appreciate your willingness to be available so quickly on this topic. The last question that I have for you is what's something that's bringing you hope right now? And it does not have to be anything about financial aid or work, but it can be <laughs> as you Think about the world around you. What what inspires hope for you? So right now, as as you know, but listeners may not, I also am an adjunct instructor on campus. And honest to goodness, Michelle, and I've told you this before, but it just gets driven home every semester, is the kids are all right. Mm. Like whatever day you are having that you think that, oh goodness, what does this future look like? Bo-hum or whatever, you see these delightfully bright-eyed and optimistic and wildly intelligent and emotionally intelligent and sensitive and kind and aware who are the future of this profession. And you just, I'll be honest, they feel I, I get more out of this than they get out of me. I 100% believe that, that Every semester when I sit down and these are master students and they are the future of the profession is bright. And so when I meet with them individually and I just get to sort of share their energy, their joy, their passion, it's not work. It's absolutely inspirational to me. So that is what's giving me light and giving me hope. And also I have a really cute, almost nine year old at home. <laughs> and by cute, I mean, like he used to, I mean, he's still real cute, but now there's like, stinky feet and farts so 
but he he just approached I want to be nine again just the joy with and innocence with which you approach life and dive in two feet at a time absolutely reminds me that you can still be young at heart and still be a grown-up right and that's and you don't have to necessarily have a tiny human of your own but I don't know go find a tiny human they're spend a little bit of time with them and just they're pretty great put things in perspective a lot of times. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one last time, thank you. Thanks for the work that you do every day and the unpredictable work that you will do in the future. And good luck. Keep working on the dissertation. We'll continue to chat about that. But thanks again, Amy. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. This is really great. And I hope everyone sort of learns something and enjoys our time together as much as I did. That's wonderful. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA. We thank them for their support. Check out upcoming SAXA events, including the Future of Student Affairs Summit, hosted by James Madison University, and both the New Professionals Institute and Mid-Managers Institutes, co-sponsored by SAXA and NASPA Region 3. I'd also like to leave you with a quote. Don't tell me where your priorities are. Show me where you spend your money, and I'll tell you where they are. James W. Frick. My name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Have a beautiful day.